For Redeemer, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verses 28 through 39. This is God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. It's strange speaking to you through this medium, but I'm also thankful for technology. These past few days, they feel like scenes from a movie or something you might read in a history class about a plague that happened 400 years ago. One day, maybe 300 years from now, what we're enduring in this hour will be in the history books that people will one day read about classes being canceled and the stock market plunging, tissue and bread shortages, quarantine to our own homes, the stock market plunging, wondering if our businesses will open again, and the list goes on and on. And this does not even take into account what the death toll may end up being. New words that we were not accustomed to using in an everyday basis. Words like flattening the curve and social distancing are now being used daily. We're all trying to deal with how to live with less. Less money, less human touch, less food on the shelves, less control over our lives less knowledge of what the future holds. And yet, learning to live with these lesses 
can give way to us doing more of other things. We check the news more. We check the stock market more. We spend more time watching Netflix, more time watching movies, more time playing video games, more times on social media. I ran into a friend who invests in the wine and spirits industry and he told me firsthand that people are actually buying more alcohol. I was in Academy Sports yesterday picking up a few items and realized that people are buying more weapons and more ammunition, so much so that there's a limit right now at Academy Sports where you can only buy three boxes of ammunition. I have a sneaking suspicion that what we find ourselves doing more of in these moments could be an indicator of where we're trying to find comfort and hope in the midst of the chaos. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says that it's not a matter of if we have rival gods. He says we all do. They're hidden in every one of us. But it takes moments like these for these rival gods to come up. These moments expose them. He goes on to say, how can you and I learn to identify our idols? And he offers a few ways. And one of the ways that he offers to us is with this idea that your religion is what you do with your solitude. The true God of our hearts is, is what we effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding our attention. And it seems to me right now that we have a lot of time and solitude on our hands. And so where are our minds and hearts going in these moments? That if you're like me, my mind is going back to the past, waiting for the day for things to return back to normal. And it could be that that's an idolatry of predictability where I want things to look like they have always looked. And it could be that there is an idol there. That maybe it's money, maybe it's in protection, maybe it's in predictability. Maybe we're numbing because we don't want to confront and deal with this tragedy. Another test of our idols are our uncontrollable emotions. When fishermen fish that they can tell where fish are swimming because of the current above the water. And they know that where they see the current that there is something beneath and Tim Keller makes this statement that when we see these uncontrollable emotions bubbling to the surface, that it could be that whatever it is that's causing that to bubble, that, that, that there is an idol there. That what are we looking to for self-stability and security? And when that thing is threatened and exposed, our emotions are extreme. From the youngest of us to the oldest of us, we're all turning to more in these chaotic times. And it could be that what we're running to is false comfort, false hope. The bad news is there is no true comfort in those things. Not in our money, not in our health, not in the past, not in our weapons, not in our knowledge. 
But the Bible does offer us real comfort in the midst of chaos. John Stott, writing about Romans 8, he says this, Romans 8 is surely one of the best known texts in the Bible. On it, believers of every age and place have stayed their minds. It has been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. Isn't that what we're after? Comfort in the chaos. Comfort is found in Romans 8. I want you to remember three words this morning. And those three words all begin with the letter P. The first word I want you to remember is presence. The second word I want you to remember is promise. And the third word I want you to remember is proof. Presence, promise, and proof. What's the first point, I think, uh, first point coming from the passage? I think we can find comfort in knowing that the presence of suffering in our lives has been clearly communicated to us. We can find comfort knowing that the presence of suffering in our lives, it's been clearly communicated to us. Look, we're parachuting into Romans 8 this morning. We've been in Mark, and we'll pick Mark back up next week. But I want you to know what's happening in the broader context. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to have Romans 8 open. If you're looking on an app, I'd invite you to open that app. But if you look at uh, Romans 8, 16, for an example, 16 and 17, notice what Paul says in, in, at the end of verse 17. It says that if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and he's talking about us, provided we suffer with him. And so Paul is speaking about suffering in Romans 8. But look at verse 18 of Romans 8. He says, for I consider that the, the sufferings of the present world or present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, right before our passage, he's talking about sufferings, but we also see it embedded in our passage. Look right there at verse 28 of, of Romans 8. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things. If you want to underline in your Bible, underline all things, because Charles Hodge says that all things, based on the context of Romans, it has to mean all sufferings. But what kind of suffering does Paul have in mind here? Paul answers his own question right down in verses 35 through 38. Look at what Paul writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I think Paul has four types of suffering that the Bible actually says that we will endure in this life. And they also begin with four Ps. First, there is suffering at the hands of other people. Notice that Paul says, who? As, as a person, who shall separate us? Notice he uses the language persecution and sword. Bricks don't persecute people and, and, and bricks don't carry swords. People persecute people, and people carry swords. 
And so Paul has a suffering in mind that is coming from the hands of other people. But there's also suffering from our own persons. When we sin against God and others and ourselves and we hurt our own souls, there's also suffering from demonic powers. Look down at verse 38. He's speaking of angels and rulers and powers. And then there's suffering from this broken place that we call home, this earth. Look at verse 35. He mentions famines. That he's just told us in Romans 8 that creation groans and it heaves as it waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That creation was subject to futility by Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. That not only was there fracture between God and, and, and man, but there was fracture between man and creation. So now this earth would have thorns and thistles. And famines happen when the earth stops yielding food for us. And you know, I think the coronavirus would be under this type of suffering. How can something we can't see with the naked eye? It's smaller than bacteria. It's smaller than the human cell. How can this thing become this living particle composed of a nucleic acid, a coat of protein, and a lipid membrane? How can it do this much damage? It doesn't contain the enzymes to carry out chemical reactions on its own. And so this little virus, it needs a host cell to live within in order to make more copies of the virus. And what makes this little virus jump from animals to humans? And what's it's in a human? What makes this little thing that we can't see reproduce and then release upon others, what makes it target our respiratory system? On a molecular level, how can something so invisible and so tiny do so much damage to the human body and to the world? It's because of suffering right here on this place that we call home. And so Paul is not a naive optimist. He's a biblical realist. He views life based on what God had said life will be like in this fractured world. And he learned this early on in ministry. On the very day he was commissioned to preach the gospel, Jesus told him, I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. How do you like that? That's your job description. You get a new job and your boss tells you on the first day of the job, it's going to be hard and you're going to suffer. Why would Jesus say that at the beginning? So that he would not think that following him and living on this side of eternity would be a bed of roses. It's not, it can't be. And Paul would later himself say, through many tribulations and sufferings, must we enter the kingdom. And you know what? Paul endured suffering in all of those four ways. Other people beat him. In Romans 7, he afflicts his own soul. When he says, I don't know what I do, the good that I want to do is not what I do. Like, like Paul is 
afflicting himself with his own sin, this body of death that he carries around. And then he suffered demonic attack. In 2 Corinthians, he says, a messenger of Satan was given to him to torment him. In Ephesians, he says, we, not you, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities. This is Paul talking about demonic suffering. But he also suffered at the hands of the earth. In the book of Acts, the sea almost killed him. And his boat was almost, it was completely destroyed. In the book of Acts, there was a famine. In the book of Acts, he was bit by a snake. And the natives thought that he was going to die. Paul, the apostle, wasn't immune to suffering. Neither are we. Christians and non-Christians alike have this in common. This is why Ecclesiastes 9 says, the same things happen to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean. This is why Peter says, do not be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. I don't know about you, but It's been comforting to be in God's word and to be reminded from my father that he's not asleep at the wheel, that he's been truthful to us. He has told us in his word over and over and over and over again, it will rain on the just and the unjust alike. This is what life looks like here in this world. But while we share this in common with unbelievers, God has made a unique promise to us, which is my second point. We can find comfort in the promise that God will work all suffering for our good. Now, before we get into Romans, I want to digress to the book of James. If you're like me, you've probably felt blindsided by everything that's going on. If you would have asked me two weeks ago, would we have to record a service and upload it? If you would have asked me two weeks ago, would my kids be at home all day? Because if they're home all day, that means I'm feeding them all day. And if they're at home all day, that means we have to figure out how to educate our kids because they go to public school. I would not have imagined any of this. And neither did you. We all had plans. We had planned to go on spring break. And when this virus broke out, it was canceled. We plan these things out, and then God, with an eraser, erases them. This is what was going on in James. James was talking to a group of people who were making lavish plans. We'll go to this place, and we'll spend an entire year there, and we'll turn a profit, right? That is what James 4.13 says, and then James says, 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to live by this saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. James is saying they were guilty of making a plan that lasted and stretched out for an entire year. And in his humor, he says, you don't even know what happens tomorrow. I think we all thought we knew what tomorrow would look like until we woke up and it didn't. We don't know what tomorrow will look like. But there are some things we can know. Did you catch what Paul says in our passage? Look at verse 28. He says, and we know this. Look right down there in 38. He says, for I am sure of this. And so Paul isn't saying, I know exactly what will happen. We don't. He says, but there are some things you can know that when the unforeseeable happens, there are some things that are rock solid true. And it's right here in our passage. It's that God will work all things, whatever it is that comes our way. He says he will work that for our good. For our good. And that verb there, working together, it's it's important. Because it's only used one other time in Scripture where God is the subject, and it's in Mark chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16, verse 20, it says this, And the disciples went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed their message by accompanying signs. And so the disciples are going out And it says the Lord worked with them and gave them signs. But here's the question. Where is the Lord? If you go back to Mark verse 19, right before it, it reads like this. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And so in other words, Jesus goes up to heaven. And then Mark says the disciples went out into the world to work. And it says Jesus, who they couldn't see, he was ascended. The Jesus who they couldn't see was working in the world that they could see. And that's what Paul is saying to us this morning, that though we can't see him, he is at the right hand, and he is working. He is working all of this for our good, which leaves me with two questions. Who benefits from this, and what is the ultimate good? This is not an all-inclusive promise. Everyone is not privy to this divine favor. When it comes to suffering, the believer and the unbeliever alike are both subject to them. Yet notice that the promise that all things are being worked by God for our good is a special promise to a certain group of people. Who? It's not based on your wealth. It's not based on 
your nationality. It's not based on your education. It's not based on your age. Paul says, for those who love God, all things are being worked out for your good. But they're also the same ones, the ones who are called by God according to his purpose. And so these, these, this is two sides of the same coin that the ones who can claim this promise that all things are being worked on the one side, it's all those called according to the purposes of God. On the other side, it's those who love him, but they're one and the same. The one who is called by God will love God, and the one who loves God has been called by God. This is a particular promise to God's covenant people. Well, what good does Paul have in mind here? It's important to define that. Is good protecting us from the virus? For some, I imagine, yes. There will be millions who are exposed. And we will soon hear stories of people who had no fighting chance at survival. And God intervenes. And he saves and he spares. And it results in a deeper faith, a deeper hope, a deeper love, a deeper trust, a deeper fear, a deeper longing. And so, the good might not feel good. Any one of us may get this virus. Any one of us can have our bodies wreaked. And any one of us can be quarantined and be forced to leave this earth without loved ones next to us because we might give it to them. And we will close our eyes and we will open them up and we will see Jesus. That is still good, that all will be well, that sin and suffering will be in the rearview mirror, and that will be God's goodness to his people. And it could be that for some, God's goodness is that we're losing this comfortable life that we thought we would have, that maybe in his goodness, your heart was like the rich man who built bigger barns, who said to himself, see, I have enough. My soul is content. And God says, no, I'm not going to let you go there. I love you too much. And you'll have to trust me. And that'll be good. And for some, marriages are hard. We're disconnected from our children. And the Lord uses something like this. Our kids are scared, and they're finally open to the gospel. And it will be good. And for some of us who have created an idolatry out of friendship, where we just need the company of people, 
in an excessive sense. It might be good when God forces us to be alone. And we discover in this season that Jesus is our best friend. That he sticks closer to us than a brother or a mother. And it could be that God is using this to awaken this beautiful friendship with him. Simply put, we don't know what the good is. Sometimes we may see the silver lining. Sometimes life looks ugly and tattered and we turn it to the other side of the rug and there's this beautiful tapestry. Sometimes, like Mr. Zach did in his devotion, Stuck, which I would encourage every family to watch from Genesis, and it's online on our coronavirus page, that sometimes we're like Joseph, where he's sold into slavery, and decades later, his own family comes to Egypt to get food, and his brothers are worried, now that dad is dead, will Joseph kill us? And Joseph says, I will not. What you intended for evil, God has worked for good. And some of us may get to see some goodness on this side. And some of us may not. That goodness won't be discerned on this side of eternity. But good has to be more of him, more like him more enjoyment of him, more trust of him, more fear of him, more conformity to him. And God is wise enough to tailor all of this individually to his people so that he knows exactly what we need, how we need it, and when we need it. He's working this sufferings, these sufferings out for our good. My final point is, What's our proof? How do we know that God has and will work all sufferings for our good? Which leads me to the last point. We can find comfort in the proof that God has already done the hardest and most glorious thing for us. Where's the proof? Paul says the proof is in the past Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, and us all being all the ones who love him and are called to his purpose, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is a classic greater to lesser argument. Paul is appealing to this greater thing that God has done And he's casting something in a smaller sense. And so let me illustrate it, and then we'll walk the text. Hey, kids, I miss seeing you and can't wait to see your faces and your smiles again. But let's just say you love spaghetti, and that's your favorite meal in the whole world. And let's just say every Thursday night, it's your night to choose what meal. The family eats. And so you like spaghetti. 
And so from the time that you were five or six, mom and dad or mom or dad would run to the store and get some noodles and get some ragu. And they, she would get home or he would get home and prepare the food. And every Thursday, it was a tradition that you had spaghetti. And the older you got, the more fancier you got. You didn't just want ragu. You wanted homemade spaghetti sauce with heirloom tomatoes. And you wanted homemade pasta. And you wanted a certain type of meat. And for every year, for 15 years before you left to go to college, every Thursday night was pasta night in your household. And you spared no expense. Mom and dad went to all extremes to make it right. And it was a tradition in your home. Suppose you go to college and you come home and you have the flu. And you go to MEA and they give you some medicine. And the doctor says, I want you to have some Sprite, some crackers, and some Campbell's low-sodium can soup. Would you have a problem asking mom or dad for soup, for Sprite, for crackers? The soup costs 73 cents. No. You would know that if mom and dad have spared no expense for pasta for 15 years and made it a big deal, soup out of a microwave, that's easy. That's the logic that Paul is using in our passage. He actually says God has done something great and grand. And what is it? It says, he did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us. The proof is found in the work of a person, the work of Jesus. God did not spare Jesus. God gave up his own son. Do you know how hard that was? Jesus was crushed, that Jesus fell on his face at the thought of alienation from his father. But have you ever considered the cross from the side of the father? That if the Trinity consists of one God in three persons, they're equal in deity, equal in power, equal in essence, equal in affection for one another, then surely the Father loves Jesus as much as Jesus loves the Father. And surely when Jesus is there in Gethsemane weeping and crying and sweating blood at the thought of the Father turning his face away, surely there is a requisite response of the Father in heaven. Surely the Father in heaven is not laughing. He's not indifferent. That it hurts Jesus to be separated from his Father but I want to submit to you that because of our theology of the Trinity, it actually hurts the Father to give up his own son. And, but the Father does. Paul says he does. He looks at his own son, and he says, Son, I know it hurts, and it's breaking my heart, but there is no other way. And Jesus is looking at the Father. Is there another way? And the Father says, There is no other way. And he says, Well, thy will be done, that the Father and the Son. This is hard. And yet Paul says, The Father does it. 
he gives up his own son for us. That his son came as one who suffered. His son came as one who drank the cup of wrath. His son came and was abandoned by the father. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was the one from whom men and women hide their faces. But why did he suffer? He suffered so that whatever sufferings are in front of us, they will not undo us. He's reconciled us to God. He was sent on a rescue mission to restore us back to relationship with God. He came to complete the plan of God hidden for ages. And so I have a chain here. Paul says in Romans 8 that God foreknew us, which means in eternity past, way back here, God foreknew us, and those he foreknew, he foreloved, he predestined. That was the second thing. He predestined us. He determined that we will spend eternity with him even before we were even born. And then in real time and space, he called us. And the ones he called, he justified, he declares us righteous in his sight now and forever. And he will glorify us, meaning that he has and will make us new. He will finish the plan that he started, but there's a missing link. Who will be the one to execute the plan? And Paul says, it was Jesus. What Jesus has done for you believers, he has bound you and he has completed the plan of God hidden for ages. So that no matter what happens, no matter what, how the winds blow, you and I are safe and secure from all alarms. And so Paul would say, If the Father has done that, he's done the greater thing. Do you think the sufferings of this world can separate you from him? God working all things for our good from his vantage point, it's like a mom or dad pushing a button on a microwave to get us chicken noodle soup. Jesus is not only the proof, but he's also the pattern. You might be asking why. In verse 29, it says, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Jesus came and he suffered and he died and he was raised and he made it to the other side. And our lives will look a lot like that. I'll close with this. When I was in middle school, I went to Disney World with Upward Bound at Tougaloo College. And it was a summer program for uh, uh, inner city children here in Jackson. And there was a roller coaster. 
and the roller coaster was an indoor roller coaster. And not only was it indoor, but parts of the roller coaster were dark. And so I'm eighth grade, hadn't rode, I, I, I'd never rode a roller coaster before. And so we get in line and it's my turn. And I start to see people like my age and older turning around because they did not want to get on the roller coaster. And I'm up there, it's my turn, and I'm, I, I want to do it, but I see the darkness that they're going into, and I almost turned around. And the kid who was about three years older than me, he says, hey, little man, don't be scared. I said, why? He said, man, I've rode this thing X amount of times. And I was like, so? He said, well, let me tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to go in, and it's going to be dark, and then parts of it are going to get light, and you're going to turn and go upside down. But guess what? You're going to make it back. You're going to come back into the light. And I still wasn't having it. And this older kid says, little man, I'll ride with you. And I rode the roller coaster. And it twisted, and it turned, and it took us upside down. And it was in the dark, but we came out where there was light. That's what Jesus is telling us, beloved. He's traveled this path before. He's tasted death. He's tasted suffering unimaginable. And he's here to tell us, I made it. I made it out. And he's like a big brother who says, not only will I tell you what it's going to be like, I'll get in here and ride it with you. You're never alone. Redeemer, may these words comfort your heart. And if you're not a believer, man, I would love to spend time with you sharing the hope that we have in Christ. It's really simple. Agree with God that you're a sinner in his sight. Come to him confessing in, in brokenness of spirit and trust. Trust that one was made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, would you bless your word to your people. May it build up our hearts for your glory, I pray. Amen. Redeemer, I'm going to pronounce the benediction. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And God's people said, amen. Thank you.